Welcome to Lame Stream here on the 440 Sports Network. My name is Braden Gall. You can follow me on Twitter at Braden Gall. My name is Steve Cavendish. You can find me at Scavendish on Twitter. If you are so inclined, please rate, please review, please subscribe. Smash that subscribe button. Smash it hard. Smash it often. Wow. There you go. Break the table. Little little caffeine here. This break morning. the table. Break the phone. Do all of that. Also follow, of course, all the 440 Sports accounts as well at 440Sports on Twitter and Facebook at 440 Media on Instagram. Today on the show, our guest, Mitch Light. Man, I'm excited about this. So in the interest of full disclosure, I have worked very closely uh, with Mitch Light for a large chunk of my career. So I could tell a lot of stories on the show today. I will not do that, Steve. I will let him do that. Mitch Light is the is the person who has hired more people that I know to, to write for them <laughs> than maybe anybody else in town. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I, I think every sports writer in town has at some point turned a story into Mitch Light. And and Mitch has lived in a premium world, and that is what we want to focus on today for the majority of his career. And he's done it in very different ways. And I think that's what's going to be interesting today on the show is that you're going to his his processes and and the content that he has worked on his entire career has kind of all been in the same premium world, but in very different ways. Entrepreneurship at the start of his career, Athlon Sports magazines, which come out every year, of course, uh, through, a, through, through a big chunk of his career, and now with The Athletic, his current employer, uh, in a digital way. So it's fascinating to, to see how his mind has sort of tethered through all of these different mediums and different ways to deliver content, but it's still kind of the same thing for him. And that is delivering high level, thoughtful content to his readers that he thinks they want to have. Mitch has got, Mitch has developed a reputation over the years as, as one of not only the better editors in town, but as one of the more creative guys in working with writers and, and kind of getting really inventive features out there and getting and getting really engaged I, I hate i hate using the word content but engaging really engaging content out there part of that has been kind of proximity when you're doing a an annual magazine where you have to be on the athlon sports has to be on the newsstands in you know june of every year you're having to you're having to like really dig deep for what kinds of features are going to hold up over you know three or four months and it, it, I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated when people can execute that at a high degree like Mitch has been able to. Well, and you talk about being a great editor. I would say a lot of the things I have learned in my career about sort of the, the you know, anything I've learned about editing or fact checking or producing a magazine or print publication or, you know, even just writing style and form. Every, I've learned almost all of that from Mitch because I did not go to J school. And, and he has taught me almost all of that through the course of just being around him. He also is incredibly convicted in what he thinks is the right way to do something, the wrong way to do something, the appropriate way to do something. And he is, and I know you hate the word content, but he is, in my mind, he's like a content warrior. He is completely obsessed with the content itself. That That is his always been his focus and his drive and his goal. And He's not a business guy. He's not into the how all the other stuff is going on, but he is obsessed with how crisp and clean and tight that content is for his reader. And I, I've, I've learned a lot about how I've done my job over my career from working for him for a long time at Athlon Sports. He's going to talk about this. It's, it's really interesting. Don't have to be a J school guy in order to, in order to kind of get that. He, he got the, the Grantland Rice scholarship at Vanderbilt. He'll, he'll talk about how, kind of how he did it, and you know they wanted. They wanted well-rounded people. They don't. They don't want kind of like narrowly focused journalists. 
Do, do you know the list of some of the other people that are on the Grantland Rice Scholarship I mean, Award? I mean, it's impre- recipient list. It's impressive. There's some antiheroes on there, but uh, you, you, are you are you referring to Skip Bayless, who is wildly successful? You know, Dan I, Wolken, pretty successful, equally hated. You know, I you can take or leave Wolken. I would leave him. The but Lee Lee Jenkins is on that list, and who, who might be the best NBA writer on the planet. Right Lee now. Jenkins is fantastic. Lee Jenkins is at the top of the list of all. Buster only went to. Vanderbilt. I don't know if he got the scholarship. I don't. I don't think he's on the list. Uh, Tyler Kepner is a big baseball writer uh, in the baseball world. Andrew Marinus, of course, uh, is is on that list. A guy who wrote the Perry Wallace book, Strong Inside, the the story of sort of breaking the color barrier in the SEC. So point point is, is that Mitchell Light is in some good company uh, as the only person in North America who got that scholarship that year, and he was in 1989. Anyway, Mitch is a fantastic uh, interview here. Uh, you're going to learn a lot. You know, we could do a couple more hours with Mitch. I'd love it. And I could tell you a lot of. We Weird stories about him and, and our text messaging over the years, but I will not. I will not do that today. We will let Mitch tell you all about his career, how he got started as an entrepreneur in premium content, how he worked for a magazine company, and how that magazine company sort of evolved from pre-internet to post-internet, uh, as well as his transition into sideline reporting, and now, of course, with the Athletic, a premium world in a digital space. So, without further ado, our conversation with the Athletics, Mitch Light. Mitch, first of all, thank you for giving us a few minutes of your time. You, you've sort of had a, a fascinating career in that you've been involved in almost every possible form of media uh, on the planet, except I don't know how much television you've done. We'll, we'll get to that. But you've basically. Some. I've done some television. <laughs> That's what I thought. Uh, on camera? Some. Uh, yeah, yeah. Not, not very good television, but I've done some <laughs> television. Uh, let's take people back to how you got started. And n- namely, th- there is a scholarship at Vanderbilt that is sort of dedicated to, I guess you can explain it better than I can, media or journalism, but there's no journalism department. You got to Vanderbilt and then launched your own company, essentially. So maybe take people through the process of what that scholarship is, who else has been involved in that, and then how you guys got started with the Commodore Report. Thanks for having me, in all seriousness. I've enjoyed you guys' show so far. So yeah, I was just like, grew up in New Jersey, like a lot of just kids, just loved sports, loved all sports, liked writing, uh, wrote for the, my high school's paper was the editor of my high school paper really got started though the the local in, in New Jersey it's like a lot of real small towns it's not like here in Nashville where you got the big city and then a bunch of suburbs like so so there's a paper the independent press a daily uh, a weekly newspaper that covered all the little small towns and just when I was in high school they started a little program where you get uh, one kid from each high school would write about his town that week so I went to New Providence High School once a week I wrote a column about New Providence sports so that was kind of my first foray into sports writing and then I applied to a bunch of colleges and I think I applied to nine schools Um, and I was in my guidance office one day like December January pretty late in the process for applying to schools and you know you see all these scholarships like the Lions Club offers a $1,500 scholarship here or $200 scholarship here and it's like Vanderbilt University offers a full tuition scholarship <laughs> for one high school sports writer in North America. I was like, holy You can shit. say shit. Can, yeah. yeah, holy shit. This is, and I, I was very familiar with Vanderbilt, even though growing up in New Jersey, because my dad went to the University of Alabama. My whole family's from the South. So I grew up watching SEC football. I, I had not applied to Vanderbilt. The only school I applied in the South was Tulane because my mom's family is from New Orleans. So, so I remember I was working in a liquor store in high school, um, and I got a call, <laughs> and the most Southern voice I'd ever heard in my life. This guy, I pick up the phone. The guy says, Mitch, you got a phone call. And his name was, he's since retired. 
His name was D.K. Smith. He was head of financial aid at Vanderbilt. And he offered me, you know, the, the scholarship. It's called the Grantland Rice Fred Russell Scholarship. And the thinking, the theme of it is that to be a sports writer, you don't need journalism school. You need a well-rounded liberal arts background, liberal arts education. So, you know, Fred Russell, everyone knows, went to Vanderbilt. Grantland Rice went, went to Vanderbilt. So that's, it was that's, a, that's Mr. Russell, if, you, uh, if, you're, yes. if you're a Banner alum. And I can tell you guys, and, and uh, Steve, you'll appreciate this, Brent, you're a little too young to be around when Fred Russell was around. But uh, once a semester would take all four winners, because there's only one scholarship winner per year. So there were four of us on campus. He would take all four of us to lunch at the university club over at Vanderbilt and just tell us stories for like two hours of, you know, being a sports starter in the south and throughout the 40s and 50s riding the trains yes exactly so that, that was a great experience so I you know I, I I remember telling my dad either I could we could go pay full price for Tulane or full tuition scholarship to Vanderbilt so that was a pretty easy decision so um <laughs> but you know the, one of the, the great things about the scholarship I don't know if it's great things is there's no commitment all you had to do was stay in the school of arts and science and keep a 2.0 GPA that's it which, yeah, that's it which I oh, managed that, to that do. explains so much now. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm it's stunned by like the, the low expectations of sports writers that Vanderbilt has. You well, that's well. <laughs> I mean, everyone who's on the wins a scholarship goes to write for the Hustler. It's not like you're not going to do it, but you know, say, you, say that again. The name of the the paper. The Hustler, the Vanderbilt Hustler. No, the, the best part was writing for the Hustler was like you could show up to a road game and go to like Beard Eaves Memorial Coliseum in Auburn for a Vanderbilt Auburn game and show up to the dude at the will will call and say, uh, Mitch light with the hustler and have him look at you like what the hustlers covering the, the, the Auburn basketball game. Um, so, uh, you know, got involved with the school paper and it, it was a great experience. And I, one thing that I, I try to, when I talk to young people about maybe going to Vanderbilt or any school that doesn't have a traditional journalism program, you can get a, obviously sports journalism, Missouri, Northwestern Syracuse, great educations, great experiences there but there's a lot of competition. Like if I would have gone to Syracuse, like maybe by my junior year, I'm covering a lacrosse game. My third week on campus at Vanderbilt, I'm covering Vanderbilt, Alabama football game. You know, there's just, the staff's not as big. There's not as it's, there's again, there's no journalism program. So there's no, it's not like there's 20 freshman boys showing up to, to, to want to cover football. So I, I had a great run writing for the hustler. I was a sports editor, my sophomore and junior year for, for one calendar year. Went to the NCAA, covered Vanderbilt in Tucson, Arizona, the NCAA tournament. That was the year that UNLV was UNLV was out there. That's the year they went undefeated. Vanderbilt played Georgetown in the first round with Matumbo and Morning. So just a great, you know, for a sophomore in college, just great experience covering sports. You know, great run there, but didn't really know, didn't love it. I mean, I, I wasn't like, I've got to go into writing. I've got to go into sports journalism. And quite frankly, after graduation, I said, do I want to go, do I want to pay the price? Do I want to like go cover high school baseball in Mississippi, making $10,000 a year to make it in this business? And at the time I said, no. So I, I returned home, lived with my parents in New Jersey for six months, then moved to Hoboken, New Jersey, and then made the big move across the, the river and lived in Manhattan for a, a year and a half and worked for an, a corporate job for an insurance company, had a good time but it wasn't for me. So after about a year and a half, two years, just living in the corporate world, I decided when my, when my best friend from college, Bill Trochi, who was working at a newspaper up in Massachusetts, I said, you know how much fun we used to have with the hustler? That was fun, but we actually had to go to class. We had to go to school. What if we did the same thing, but didn't have to go to school? So at the time, this is 1994, 95, when we started talking about this. At the time, 13 of the 14 schools in the SEC, or no, I'm dating myself. 11 of the 12 schools in the SEC had 
uh, fan newspapers, you know, like the cat, the cat's paws is the, the famous one, you know, Kentucky, it's been highly successful, but some sort of newspaper or magazine, not affiliated with the university, just like Vanderbilt had one in the seventies and eighties, and then they went out of business. So I'm like, okay, let's, you know, my roommate in New York, kid I grew up with, his brother was in law school at Columbia. He helped me come up with a business plan. Like I wanted to do, if I was quitting my job, we were quitting our jobs and moving to Nashville. We wanted to do this the right way. So we actually came up with a really official business plan. I moved to Nashville, quit my job. In fact, when, when I went to go tell my, my boss in New York that I was quitting my job, he invested uh, in our company. Like I gave him a business plan. I said like, I'm <laughs> quitting, I'm moving to Nashville. He invested $10,000 in our company. So we raised, we is called, that, called. Is that, is that like the Yankees paying David Justice to play for someone else? You know what? <laughs> I never thought of it that way, but thank you, Steve. <laughs> hmm. You know what? I don't care because I got his money um, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he never got it back. So we, we cold called a bunch of Vanderbilt alumni, basically. And, you know, I moved down here. I worked at bus tables at Ruth's Chris while kind of laying, laying the seeds for the company. And we wanted to do a Vanderbilt sports newspaper where we covered the teams uh, again, but we're independent. Uh, we raised over $100,000 from basically some from my boss and, and, and some alumni to start a business. Um, it, was, it was a weekly newspaper. It was anywhere between 20 and 24 pages. It was 36 times a year. We did it out of our, we, we lived in an apartment or a house off of Natchez Trace right near Vanderbilt. And we did everything, all the writing, ad sales, layout, design, dealt with the post office, which was a total nightmare because, you know, you got, we mailed it all over the, the, the country and stuff like that. So we, we, again, we covered all aspects of the team. And after two years, we struck a deal with the Commodore club, which is the booster club there. And so we were still independent, but they bought, like I said, we went weekly. So once a month we would mail the, uh, an addition to all, I think 5,000 members of the booster club, whatever, whatever the number was back then. And they got one page to promote whatever they wanted to do. Like, you know, Braden Gall, the scholar athlete of the week, you know, Braden got a 1.2 GPA and, Ooh. you know, so, so, and so, so, but they never told us what we could write about or anything like that. So, I mean, we, we still were, were independent and, and part of the deal was, so they paid us to mail it once a month to all of their Commodore club members. So that deal really kept us going. It was a great financial move for us. So we did that for three more years. And so I guess we were supported by the booster club there, but still remained independent. And we started that when we were like 23 and single and we both got married and we're growing up and we actually made a profit our last two years. But then we just decided, you know, it's time to go up, grow up and get a real job. I mean, there was no future in this. It wasn't like we were going to make any real money. Again, we, we paid ourselves a little bit of a salary. It was just, it was a way to get in the business, kind of set ourselves up and do what we really wanted to do, cover college sports. Uh, we stopped, I think in the year 2000, we didn't work in the summers when we did that because, you know, we covered college sports. I had worked at Athlon Sports fact-checking one summer, just as a summer job. And after we stopped doing this, I got a job at an internet. Do uh, Braden, you would not remember. Steve, you might remember the company Telelink, one of the oh, first. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, one of the first uh, internet providers in Nashville. Thomas Connor was a Vanderbilt graduate, was a subscriber to the Commodore Report. So after we stopped doing the newspaper, he he offered me a job there in marketing, so, sort of like my job out of college. I got a job, sounded like a good deal. Then I realized after six months, you know what? I wasn't cut out for it. I want to do sports again. So I got a job. Uh, I got was fortunate. Athlon was hiring another editor. Started at Athlon in 2001 and was promoted to managing editor, I think, about 2008. Held that job up into 2000, uh, last January until I started with The Athletic. 
you watched a premier print publication that was the, you know, the biggest and most successful and best looking college football magazine, preview magazine on newsstands. And you sort of lived through the, the, the life cycle of the, the yep. publication to some degree. So maybe take people through, you know, you got started in 2000, you started as a fact checker, you took over sort of as managing editor, it sounds like in 08. I actually got started, I guess, a year before you took over that role. So what I wanted, what I want you to explain is sort of how the product and the industry of print changed because the content, we could talk about the content and that's certainly something that we want to talk about, but I'm more interested in explaining to people how the structure around the content shaped the magazine and how that changed from the time you got there in 2000 to the time you left in 2019. So I guess 2001, internet's five years old, pretty much. Would you, I'd say probably 95, 96 is really when I remember the internet starting. So it was still, wasn't much of a threat to, to magazines like Athlon Sports. You go back and look at an old, from the, from the early 2000s, it's very, very thick. There's tons of ads. And um, so I started to notice the, the first thing that I, first time I noticed that the internet was really going to be a, a serious player. I mean, you know, just the, that we needed to rethink the way we did things was we, we had, um, and, and one thing that I took pride in Athlon was we had freelance writers all over the country doing the stories for their specific team. A lot of our competition would have one guy do the entire big 12, one guy do the entire pac 12. And you, you can't be an insider at 10 schools or 12 schools. Um, because when I first got there, we had a guy out of Texas A&M writing our Texas story. And he wrote it before spring practice. And I can't remember the guy's name, but in spring practice, they had like an All-American right tackle switch to left tackle. And evidently, it's a big deal there. And our guy wrote it before spring. And, and so we got it wrong in the magazine. Ten years earlier, there's no way we would have – we might have gotten one letter about it. Hey, you got something wrong. It wouldn't have been a big deal. Well, someone sent me a link on the Texas message boards. We just got destroyed. Like, how – you know – how am I supposed to believe anything in this, this, this is crap. How do you not know that, you know, Braden was moved to left tackle and all that. So I said to myself, we need, we need to have a writer at every school. So that was kind of, I took it upon myself, literally university of Idaho. We got a guy from the Moscow, whatever, you know, the, the Idaho and paper Las Cruces daily news for New Mexico state. I want, I when in the assignments, I would say if the right guard, if the backup right guard moves the left guard, I want to know. You know, you tell me it might we might not put in the story, but I want to know everything that happens there. So I just I slowly noticed and I don't know if this totally answer your question, Brandon, but I slowly noticed every year the Internet being a bigger factor. It was easier to get information elsewhere. So we needed to we couldn't just do the same thing we were doing every year. We needed to be like a, a lot of the ways I explain it, like for years, we would just do like our features. Alabama has a good quarterback. Let's do a feature on the Alabama quarterback. That's easy. People won't read it up. We'll eat it up. I started to say, we need to be a little, we need to be a lot more creative with our features. The, the team previews are fine. That's very templated. That's what people want there, but we need to give people reasons to buy this magazine in the newsstand. Our cover blurbs need to be better than ever. Our photography needs to be better than ever. We, we have so much more competition. We're not just competing against the Sporting News, Street and Smith, Lindy's. We're competing against people not buying this magazine. And it, you know, I, I think we did a good job. I, you know, one of Braden's good friends, David Fox, when he joined, I think he really helped me think outside the box with a lot of different kinds of features and stuff. And I think our product, our product got better and better, but our sales would go like I, I took it as a positive when our sales would be flat year over year because the entire industry, the magazine industry, basically from the mid 2000s up till now. And it's not just people 
aren't interested in buying magazines, the whole distribution model is screwed up. And I don't know all the details. Braden probably remembers stories about, you know, we, we'd have people in College Station who could not buy our SEC magazine with Texas A&M on the cover. The only magazine there would be Big 12 magazine with Texas. Well, what's the point of doing that? What's the point of doing all these different covers with all this great photography and artwork if you can't get it out to the right people? So that was really frustrating for me is as I was on a company in a market that's kind of crumbling, there were so many other factors. Like if our product wasn't good enough, that's, that's fine. That's on us. But when we put out a good product and it wasn't getting to the right people, that was really frustrating. One of the, one of the things that when, when I've talked to journalism students these days, particularly when, when you're talking about the immediacy of the internet and, and kind of the ability to self-publish on Twitter and go straight to somebody's phone, what percentage of your sales, you know, in the in the mid to late two thousands was from grocery stores? What what percentage of your sales were from, you know, bookstores, which have now, by and large, gone out of business? When you saw all of that changing, is there is there a content response to that besides the fact you have to go yeah. to deeper features? I mean, that immediacy starts to really sort of undercut how far you can get ahead of the rest of the field. We had a you know Avon is a very successful company for a long time with great circulation people. I was, you know, we had a circulation department, so I wasn't involved in a lot of the, the, the details. I know bookstores, Barnes and Noble is our biggest seller in airports. We did not sell great in, in grocery stores and not to be sexist, but this is, you know, a lot of men aren't right. buying, they're not, they're not at newsstands or they, they weren't, you know, buying those magazines there. So again, it was, it was bookstores. So I just, I just wanted to, as the editor, want to do the best product we could. And I, you know, I tried to kind of put my head down and just say, we're going to, we're going to hold on as long as we can. We, we were fortunate that college, we did a lot of magazines, college basketball. We did a golf magazine for years, baseball. But, you know, our bread and butter was college football, and it's a niche market industry. People still love those magazines. They still love, ha- you know, buying them in June for Father's Day. It's still kind of a ritual. So we still, you know, again, we, the company's still, still selling magazines. It's still, still around. So I think we were fortunate that college football kind of really took off and, and helped support the sales. So where, and as a still current employee of Athlon Sports, I'll be delicate here, when and I pushed hard for the conversion to digital. Yes, and that's both a digital newsstand, but also, you know, to sell the hard copy, but also a digital delivery of the product. Which I think in 2020 is the first year that Athlon Sports has done a, a, a sort of a PDF online version. W- were there any editorial conversations about how to whatever the next chapter is for? Because again, this is the same conversation, like you said, every magazine yeah. company is having across every subject matter. Yeah, it was one of those things we always talked about. We all, everyone knew it was a good idea, but you had to have someone make the decision, someone make the financial decision. It's kind of an old school company that did it its own way for a long time. And I probably was guilty and not pushing it enough because I just loved doing the magazine. I'm very, you know, that's, that's what I loved to do, working on the magazine every year and anything else that got in that way of, got in the way of us producing the best magazines, I kind of like just let someone else deal with. So we had circulation people, we had, there's people that, that pushed it, we would talk about it, talk about it, then often it would get punted to the next year. And, and so I see, you know, finally, it's happened, we, we've done versions of it, we do maybe an SEC pages only, but it's clearly something where the, the company probably did not realize soon enough that, that that's the platform they need to be in. 
Uh, what was the worst thing you ever got wrong in a magazine when you were in charge? Good question. Um, the, the one that I like, I'm thinking as I'm taught, as I'm thinking it through, that I think one of the biggest mistakes in Athlon history, and I can say it proudly because I wasn't there yet, was they spelled Tennessee wrong on the cover. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. Seriously? And located in Tennessee, you know. Start, so, started in Knoxville in the 60s. Yes. Yeah, so, well, it started, it started as, and these people didn't know, it's a quick little story. Uh, the, the, the founder of the company was, was a uh, journalism student at the University of Tennessee. So he, he started it as a project there and then moved back to Nashville and started it. So it, it's been in Nashville. But yeah, so Tennessee was spelled wrong. We spelled Steve McNair's name wrong on a cover. Brutal. But the great one about this was, well, not great. We spelled it N-C-N-A-R, Nick Nair. No one knew. We put it on the cover of our CEO's desk and said, there's a typo on this cover. He couldn't find it. I called Robbie Bourne, a friend of mine who, you know, works for the Titans, media relations. I was like, sorry about the mistake on the cover. He had no idea what he was talking about. It was on newsstands throughout Nashville. We didn't get one email <laughs> call. It's just your eyes play tricks on you. Yep. So, yeah, I, we've had typos. And Brayden probably heard me say this for years. We always strive for a perfect magazine. But when you're doing 900,000 pages a year of college football or whatever it was, you're going to make some mistakes. We got saved, which probably would have been the worst mistake. Um, you know, there, there's duplicate numbers in college football, the offense, defense. And I forgot who it was. It might have been Julio Jones. It was Julio Jones. Yeah. So, and this was, this was just a bad mistake. But we're picking out photos of, you know, 70 players a year. We had a number eight with the ball in his hands. Well, it was a defensive back on probably what, Brandon, a kick return or a punt return. And that's back when we were really promoting some online sales. So we put our covers, we used to have our covers printed early. So we had to have them done two weeks out. So we had our cover up on the website and we got emails from these Alabama fans. Yo, that's not Julio Jones. And we're like, oh, yeah, we, these are just samples. We're just, we just totally played it off like we knew what we were doing. And then we swapped it out. So that would have been a huge mistake. And, you know, there's been, you know, we had one year we had, we didn't have Florida ranked. We have 130 teams. We had Stanford ranked 24th and 26th because we swapped them out. And the page, we sent the wrong page to the printer. Oh, so we heard right. from Florida fans that we didn't, uh, you know, didn't have them ranked. And, you know, just little things like that, that every year you just, I would kind of dread picking up the magazine because it's like, oh, no, what, what's going wrong? Did you ever run into the Street and Smiths guys in like in like an alley someplace and like <laughs> it's like fight it out? That's Wrong why you haven't heard from you haven't heard from them in years. Actually, <laughs> no. The, the question run, the question no, is no. what would you do to Phil Steele if you were in an alleyway with Phil Steele? <laughs> I would look at one of my twelve TVs and decide. No, Brayden gets that joke. Um, actually, uh, Lindy's was our biggest direct competitor, and I love Chuck Allen, current CEO. For I mean, my old boss, I love him to death. He's been great to me. But for some reason, he would he loved Lindy. Like, he just thought Lindy was the greatest. And he would bring him into our office. And I used to get pissed because Lindy's would always copy us. Like, not that we would change the format of our team stories. And then, like, the next year, Lindy's would look just like us. So I was like, you know, it's why are you bringing this guy in our office? And we were going to do all these content sharing ideas and stuff like that. So, um, you know, it, it, this is the first college football season that I've been involved in that I 20 years that I didn't make picks in the magazine that were printed. And it's kind of relaxing. Braden knows this. I mean, I used to watch college football. I'd watch an Oregon Washington game and stressed out because we had Washington picked ahead of him. And what is this going to do? Cause you know, we just wanted to get our picks right. So it's kind of been uh, relaxing, not worrying about all that stuff. How many letters from prison have you gotten? Oh yeah. We're huge in the prisons. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I would say of the correspondence we got over the years, 50% of the letters were from prison. Dudes just like their magazines or they, they want to, they want to talk to someone. They got extra time. 
Yeah, that extra time. Um, internet, doing time. Not, they, internet, not big in prison. Magazine. Yeah, I, 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 not last time I was there. I don't know. Maybe it's bigger now. But um, I think we're on to something here, boys. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was just we would get, could you, you know, they never had any money. They wanted us to send free magazines and all that stuff. And at first I would comply. I would send magazines and someone told me just, just throw the letters away. But, uh, yeah, just for some reason, just a lot of, lot of letters from prison. So before we move on to your change from, you know, like the oldest form of media to the newest form yes. of media at The Athletic, in between, you've done a lot of radio stuff. You've been a sideline reporter. You've hosted pregame shows for the Vanderbilt Radio Network. And take everybody through sort of the, the, the rules of engagement for a sideline reporter. You've been in locker rooms. You have privileged information. You talk to coaches and players. Sort of t tell everybody what you think the, the rules of engagement should be for a sideline reporter, either radio or television. Yeah, and real, to backtrack real quick, one of the great byproducts of joining Athlon, which I didn't really know at the time, is, you know, we, we do a lot, and Braden's still heavily involved with this at Athlon, we do tons of radio interviews promoting our product. You know, magazines come out in June, you know, the sports animal in Omaha wants you on to talk about Nebraska football. So, like, I really had done no radio, but I was forced to do it and just started doing a lot and, and got decent enough at it. So that kind of gave me the opportunity to, you know, kind of branch out in the industry and do something I never really thought I would be interested in. And I enjoyed a lot. So in 2011, when James Franklin was hired, the, the Vanderbilt radio network, part of the, what was IMG at the time, they decided they wanted to ramp up their pregame show. I guess it was an hour before that. And they wanted to go an hour and a half, bring the first hour out to Natchez Trace, where all the fans kind of mingle out, mingle around. And I was recommended to them as someone who knew Vanderbilt, but also knew college football nationally. So I could be like the third person on the show to offer like a national perspective. So Kevin Ingram was the host, Joe Fisher, obviously the play-by-play -play guy. Kevin Ingram was the sideline reporter. So I would go and go do the pregame show. So that was fine. Enjoyed that. And then middle through the second year of the James Franklin era, Kevin Ingram got a job at Fox Fox College Sports, I think it was at the time, doing OVC play-by-play -play for TV. It was something he wanted to do. He wanted to do more play-by-play. -play. So he basically left the gig mid-season, and they just promoted me into his job as sideline reporter. So I remember I, I followed him around for a Vanderbilt Florida game, and he just basically said, just do what I do. And the next week, Vanderbilt played Auburn. It was the 0-12 Gene Chizik year, Auburn. So I was just, like, on the sidelines the next week and in the locker room. And I remember walking out. At the beginning of the kickoff of a college football game, you have the radio guys out there with the microphones, you know, right in front of the, the officials for the coin flip. And I remember being out there and then they, they went to me and I just froze and like, say something, say something. I was like, Kevin didn't tell me what to say at this point because I didn't go out to the midfield. So like, I remember like, oh, this is going to be great. So I kind of panicked in my first game there. And yeah, so then just took over as it was a great time to be doing it because Vanderbilt won its next seven games that year under James Franklin. That went nine and four the next year. I always joke with people. I, I was 16 and four as the sideline reporter. You know, anyone who follows <laughs> Vanderbilt football history, you know, that's, that's just, and I used to joke with Franklin that I was the, you know, I was the reason and all that. So you, but you quickly, you're, you're working for the team. And I, I listened to the podcast you guys with, with Jonathan Hutton, really interesting stuff. So, I mean, I don't want to keep a lot of things that he said, I would meet with the coaches my favorite part of being a sideline reporter, other than, you know, I was hosting the pregame show. So every Thursday I would go by the coaches' offices and interview the offensive coordinator and the defensive coordinator for the pregame show. We'd record it. And it was Bob Shoup and John Donovan at the time. Great guys. They love to talk. And it's, you shut off the micro, you shut off the recorder after a four-minute interview, and then you just sit and shoot the shit for 20 minutes. And 
he'll tell you what you really want to know. This guy can't play. This guy shouldn't be in the SEC. This guy's going to be in the NFL. And I know Braden loved it because I'd come back to the Athlon offices and I would tell them stuff. They would tell me stuff about Tennessee, Florida. You know, the, we really got to know what the coaches thought about their own team and other teams. And I'm sure, Braden, you used to use that on radio interviews. Not like, not like Bob, Bob Shoup said this, but talk to coaches in the league and they'll tell you that, you know, so-and-so is the best running back here, the most underrated player. So that's where you, I really felt like I knew the team so much better dealing with those coaches back in that era. So as far as privileged information, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that I, I knew about injuries and about stuff that you just, I would do a radio interview on Tuesday. And I've joked with, you know, Willie Donick, who's a good friend of mine I was in college with, like, yeah, I just, I've had to flat out lie on the radio saying, I don't know what's going on with Zach Stacy's injury or whatever like that. When I, I didn't know, but that's part of the gig. You know, you're working with the team. I didn't technically work for the team. I worked for IMG radio, so I didn't work for Vanderbilt, but it's basically the same thing. So as someone, I'll just be honest, as someone who grew up loving college football, to be on the sidelines that close to the action, you know, a night game at Sanford Stadium in Georgia, it's 80,000 people. It's just, it's awesome. And it's just a different way to watch the game and being in the locker room after a big win. I don't care if it's your alma mater, if I was doing this at, you know, if I was, you know, at Michigan State or random school, it's just, it's great to be around programs, you know, that close when you're, when they're experiencing success. So I enjoyed it a lot during Derek Mason's 0-8 season. But, you know, you, you, when you're doing something, it's, it's more enjoyable when the team is winning. But just as someone who loves college football, it was just a, it was a great experience, kind of a peek behind the curtain. Did that access change anything about how you viewed your day gig? Off-the-record conversations you were having with coaches or kind of the proximity uh, you know, during game day? Did you ever look up and say, oh, this is, a, this is the story to, to be doing or this is something I hadn't thought about? Yes. I mean, I think it helped me. At first, I was a little apprehensive because as the managing editor at Athlon Sports, I wanted to be as, you know, objective as possible. Like, you know, not that Vanderbilt's obviously a major player nationally, but I didn't want to be construed, just looked at as someone like who worked for a team and you're also like, was there a conflict of interest? That's so, but I ended up thinking it made my, it made me a lot better at my day job because I knew so much more about the teams like in the SEC around the country. I got to know coaches got to know trends. A lot of the features we did were born out of conversations with coaches. Like one time Bob Shoup said to me, and I use this line all the time, being a defensive coordinator in college football is the hardest job in sports because you've got, you might be facing an option team one week, you're facing the air raid the next week, you're facing a power rushing team the next week, you basically have two days of practice to put in your game plan. So we did a feature on that. So there was a lot of times where I just, you know, that's a really good idea. So it didn't really change, you know, it, uh, again, bottom line, I think it made me better at my job because I was that much closer to the sport. So you are now working for The Athletic. It's a premium model with subscription base, you know, but it's also about storytelling. And it's sort of that's that's a magazine style editorial level of content. So sort of the similarities between your previous role at Athlon and what you do at, at The Athletic as far as picking and choosing and, and how the life cycle of a story takes place, sort of give us some of the similarities and then some of the differences that, that you have to deal with as it pertains to, you know, the business model being a, a subscription model versus, you know, ad model out there in the world. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a bit different. It was a big departure for me after living in the college football world for basically two decades interviewed for the job as the managing, managing editor for Nashville in, in, in Memphis and was going to be working with Predators writer, Titans writer, Grizzlies writers and stuff. I said, okay, I'm ready for this change. And I enjoy, I mean, you guys know all the guys I worked with, Rex Road, John Glenn, these great guys, Adam Bingen. 
but then after th three or four months, we had some layoffs at the athletic and they reorganized some things and I was switched over to the college football team. And I realized then that it, I, that's kind of where I needed to be. I mean, I'm, I think I'm so much better at my job now than I was before. And, and the way we have it structured, our editorial team, I deal with five writers, our Washington writer, Ohio State, Florida, South Carolina writer. So you had Josh Kendall on your show the other day. Great accent, by the way. One of the best accents. Him and Adam Sparks might have the best <laughs> accents in the SEC. And then Ari Wasserman, our national recruiting writer. So it's the way I approach it. Like I approached Athlon as I was a fan. I was a, a, a consumer of the product before. So I kind of thought like a fan. That's the way I approach my job now. I was a subscriber to The Athletic because of their college football content. That's why I subscribed. So, I, you know, we, we've got certain models, certain stories that we like to tell. I mean, certain formats and stuff like that. But I just, I work with our writers and I've gotten to know these teams I work with very closely, the personnel. What do the fans want to know? And the big difference is, Braden, is at Athlon, we're doing something that's an annual. It's, it's, it's got a life cycle of the, the whole football season, basically. We want it to be relevant. You could pick it up in September and October and read about it. And maybe it's specific, you know, there's something. Oh, yeah, I remember reading that in Athlon about this season. These stories, the life cycle is much shorter. It's it's basically you, you write about something today and you're on to the next thing tomorrow. The model's obviously very different. It's, it's a subscription site. So the, the qual it's quality, quality, quality. But that's one thing that I learned at, you know, I, I never dealt, I've never written for a daily paper. I've never had to edit my own copy and put it up after a game, which a lot of daily writers have. You know, we have uh, at Athlon, we, we fact checked everything once or twice. We were so into the quality and getting everything right. And that's the way I approach it now. I don't know if every editor does it, but I fact check every story I, I edit before it goes up. The stats, everyone's name, I copy the name, put it in Google to be sure we got it right because people are paying for this. You have a, I feel it's, it's my responsibility not to be sloppy, not to get anything wrong, to be sure our writers not half-assing something. Oh, it's a Tuesday. The team, you know, South Carolina is struggling. No, let, let's work. Let's come up with the best possible story we can come up with. So I really enjoy that's I, one thing I enjoyed at Athlon was dealing with all the freelance writers nationally. I really enjoy the relationships I have with the writers that I work with. So it's been a change, but uh, yeah, I enjoy it a lot. So the, the attraction for the for the athletic and, and I'm a subscriber. I, I love a lot of the work they do. I, I think in particular. College football is great. I, you know, the, the Premier League stuff that they added this past year has been has added just a ton of value to my subscription. When when you're looking at a subscriber, what's the value proposition that you're thinking about for them? What what do you, what are you looking to? What kind of stories are you looking to tell? What what are you avoiding? Yeah, I, I think by the way, you make a great point, Steve, about the Premier League. That has I, I applaud the the uh, decision makers of the Athletic because before I joined the company, I saw that they're going to start covering. You know. Premier League, it's a huge investment. Like, wh wh why are they doing that? It's been great. The covered, you know, I'm not a big soccer guy, but I've heard you talk about it. And I know it's very successful. So they've, they've made really good decisions. The value of the athletic to me is the fact that someone like you sitting in Nashville, Tennessee can read. I don't know if I should say it like this. If, if the subscription's $50, you know, after your discount, $50 or $60 a year, are you getting $50 worth of coverage of the Titans? Maybe, maybe not. Are you getting out of the Predators? You know, Adam's great. I don't know. But you're getting it based on all the things that you like. Like, I subscribe for college football, but I'm a huge New York Yankees fan. I love the Brooklyn Nets. I knew I was going to be able to read about those teams as well. So we want the best quality, obviously, the best stories. But to me, for that low monthly price or whatever the annual rate is there, you're getting everything that the athletic has to offer. You're getting great draft coverage. You're, you know, whatever you possibly want to read about. So that, that's to me is what the company has really excelled at. 
but 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 like let me take this back down to like like for instance the conversations you're having with your guys on the South Carolina beat. I yeah. mean, Will Muschamp just got canned. I'm sure that that's going to dominate sort of the coverage going forward for at least for the next few weeks. What are you thinking about in terms of stories and the competition that's out there? Because it's it, it's a it's a big time college football position. There's going to be a lot of people eating at that story. Are are you thinking about do I need do, I, do we need to be pushing this beyond? where the where the story is right now in terms of candidates or in terms of future of the program or you know kind of past mistakes that that carolina's done in hiring like how are you trying to to, to differentiate what the athletic is doing on, on south carolina or ohio state or or one of you know one of your guys beats versus say you know the beat reporter at the state in columbia or you know the dispatch in columbus yeah, that's that's a great question. Something I, I wrestle with a lot is, and I used to say to Athlon too, it's it's not rocket science. You know, we did a preseason magazine. You got your features, you got your team stories. It's not the hardest thing in the world. So you, that's why that's where the creativity comes in. I think one thing we have going for us is I credit uh, Stu Mandel and, and Dan Uthman, uh, my two bosses. They hired the right people. They went out and hired like they, for the most part. If you're going to hire a South Carolina writer, you go you go get Josh Kendall you know, in these markets, they got the people. So, you know, I think we're starting from a position of strength in most markets. And I think we are at South Carolina. I'm not saying Josh is going to break the story 100%, but he has great sources. So there's certain things that you need to do when you're covering a coaching search. Obviously, you know, you need to track, track down leads, you need to coaches and all that. But this sort of answers your question. It might not totally answer your question, but we will offer everything that you're going to get out of the state. But we also offer, in my opinion, so much more. Now, this isn't a great example because we're in the middle of the pandemic, but Josh is working on another story. I don't want to, I mean, it's not that big of a deal. It's going to come out during signing day in February that he's been working on for months that it's, you know, it's take some resources, financial resources, time resources that your beat writer at the Gannett paper, they, they, first of all, they can't spend the money to do that. They don't have the time to do that because they're doing their little stories every day. The athletic lets its, its writers breathe. I was really taken aback by this. When uh, I went to a Vanderbilt basketball practice a couple of years ago when Darius Garland was at Vanderbilt and I ran into Brian Hamilton, who is a writer for The Athletic, who did some stuff for us at, the athletic, at, at Athlon after he got laid off at Sports Illustrated. And I couldn't believe, because you know I, I follow the, the industry, that The Athletic was paying someone to come down to Nashville for three days, spend two days at Vanderbilt practice, He's going to go over to Knoxville, spend some time with Rick Barnes. He's going to head down to Auburn just to write a story a day. Like that to me was, I was shocked that the athletic was making that kind of financial commitment for every story. And that's what the company is willing to do. So in addition to being trying to think of the best ways to cover certain stories, I think, again, one of the advantages we have is we allow our writers to really explore stories that take weeks and months to, to come up with it. If it doesn't materialize, then, okay, we'll move on to the next one. So I don't know if that really answered your question, though. No, it did. So the flip side of that, though, is that it seems like the site has made a conscious attempt, and maybe and you can clarify this, maybe it's only on pro sports, but there's a little bit quicker twitch to some of the coverage than you've seen in other places. Like, for instance, you know, I, I get an alert now at the gun uh, at the result of a, at the result of a Titans game. And I'll get, you know, I'll get a quick story up on the athletic here fairly soon afterwards. Is that, is that a decision only on the pro ranks or no, that's, is it? 
that that is a huge um, change that we made starting starting in September. We have a news team, a dedicated news team. So, like in the past, if you go to ESPN.com, you see some stories, and then in the, in the right, you'll see the little the AP stories. You know, like five or six lines. What's going on? We felt, or the decision makers at the Athletic felt that we we want to attract some some of those people that are going just for those quick hitting stories. So we have a news team that like, if the Titans, if Ryan Tannehill, you know, got hurt at practice, they'll be in a Slack channel news story on Ryan Tannehill, Ryan Tannehill's injury where the AP might have four paragraphs on it, status unknown. What we do is, and I don't know if this is specifically what you're talking about. We've got a AP ish style story, but then we have Joe Rex roads take. What does this mean? We have, the writer who they playing this week, I don't even know. I should know this. Baltimore. Baltimore. We will have our Ravens writer come in. What does this mean from a Ravens standpoint? So we are bringing, we're mobilizing all of our writers to contribute on something. So like we have a South Carolina, I mean, we have college football headlines throughout the day. What does it mean? Stu Mandel comes in. Andy Staples comes in, offers his opinion. So those alerts might be that they're not what we call the premium stories that you get as a, that the reason you're subscribed. We're just filling in the gaps, providing some commentary quickly after a game and all that stuff is free trying to engage, you know, to, to get new, new readers basically on board but, to show them the quality of stuff. But that commodity news is something that's new for you guys. Yes. You, you think a couple months in, is it successful? Uh, we, we don't have an, I mean, I probably wouldn't, if I knew them, I probably shouldn't share them. I don't have the numbers yet. I mean, I think the feedback internally has been very good. It's a long-term proposition. We're trying to, we're trying to get people, get their habits to change. So you don't need to go to ESPN to get the headlines. You come to The Athletic. Okay, maybe you're not a subscriber, but you'll stick at those headlines. You can still read the, the, the news of the day, like what's going on. Like, for example, we, we uh, Dane O'Neill and, and CJ Moore, two college basketball writers, broke the Greg Marshall news weeks ago about the, the what's right. going on at Wichita State. Well, we had a huge investigative piece on that. Paid content, subscribers ate it up, very popular story. Also had a what we call a news item on it. Much shorter, few, few, few quick hitting items that was free. So that's just kind of different ways to offer the product. So I I mean it's it's been a it's a big commitment from the company. It's they, they don't do things just to just to do them. That's it's a been in the works. Th- the theory is that sampling is going to turn those people into subscribers. Yes. It, it, yeah. And, and training them to go, yeah, to, to go to the athletic, to see what we have to offer. So here's what I'll ask you, Mitch, to wrap up today. What is it like? That was a long sigh. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what I, what I feel about that. What is it like to be my boss for a decade? Can I double that sigh? Double the length of that sigh. I'm just popping popcorn over here. Um, let me go to the source here. Pain, <laughs> suffering. I laughed. I cried. <laughs> um, I, I know you love to, this is a narrative you love to push. I technically wasn't really your boss for most of that. Like <laughs> you contributed to the online product. You did a lot of different things. Like you didn't do a lot of work on the magazine. So was, was it good enough to get in the magazine is what you're saying? Yeah, of course not. One, one time, um, not true. One time I got one story in the magazine. No, he got a couple stories. He did some recruiting stories for us. No, he, he I did ranked def- the college towns. That's what yeah, he did. Me. He did some good stuff. I was, as Braden knows this, uh, I have been a advocate for Braden Gall over the years. Sometimes um, I felt like I was the only advocate in the company. <laughs> for that he would frustrate wow. people 
I'm just, hey, you asked the question. You would frustrate people, but I, I knew that your heart was in the right place about the product, and I didn't always agree with everything you said, and you didn't always listen, but I knew you had the company's best interests at heart, and I knew that you offered something that really none of us I mean, I, like I said, I got into the radio, I got into the media end of it and doing radio, but there's a difference between being a guest on a show and, and, and lead, directing a podcast and, and doing the stuff you did at Sirius. So I, I always contended with whenever there's any pushback, like, like what is Braden doing? Because, you know, as times got tough, we had to, <laughs> seriously, we had to eliminate some staff and we did. And like, so what does Braden do? I said, well, you know, the people, the decision makers at the company, the CFO, the CEO, they're not in the college media world, they don't know Braden's on Sirius talking about Athlon sports rankings and having me on and, and being an advocate for the company. So that's, that's a, lot, a lot of times when I would defend Braden's place. I'd be like, there's things that you don't see that he does for the company. He's on local radio. He's on all over the place. And he's introduced from Athlon sports, even though he works at other media outlets. So I, you know, that's, you know, I think that's, that sums up some of it. There was, there was definitely some frustration. I would, you know, I would get pissed at Braden and I would not hide my, frustration but uh look where you are now you're sitting in a room with steve yeah so i don't know if that was good or bad but um <laughs> yeah i'll let you know <laughs> yeah I'll let, yeah 10 years let me know how it's going for you so but uh, let you know what, what is the what is the future hold for sports fans in nashville Ooh, um good question um i mean I, the, the, the city has changed as you guys know, just tremendously over, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, the whole landscape. Like one thing I didn't get into is when we started the, the Commodore report, the Vanderbilt newspaper. And uh, when did you move here, Braden? 97. 97. Okay. But you were, you didn't pay attention. You were in high school. I mean, Steve knows this. It was like, it was Vanderbilt sports. It was Tennessee sports. And you know, that, I mean, that was, those were the two main things in, in Nashville. I was covered then obviously the Titans moved in and that was kind of our pitch to Vanderbilt fans. The Titans are moving in. NFL coverage. There's going to be less Vanderbilt coverage. You need to come to us for, for that. So, I mean, but now, the, the, and I've listened to most of your guys' pods on this subject, especially the first one where you really talked about it. I mean, the, 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 the Tennessee, and I, I love Adam Sparks. I love some of the people that they write there, but that's just not sufficient to cover this, this, this landscape. And that's why, there are, that's why you have this podcast. You have guests on that you've had that, that, are, that, that do media so many different ways covering all the teams here. That's what I was going to come back to. I was writing about this in the scene a few weeks ago that the Tennessee and, and banner staffs of the 90s was, the, was a driver of so much coverage. And this is sort of emblematic of newspapers in general. Where you have stronger newspapers, you have stronger you know, local broadcasts uh, because that kind, of, that kind of bleeds out. And you have kind of stronger radio as well. But without sort of those sort of drivers for local content, what do you think is going to happen to, I mean, for instance, beat coverage? It's not when, when Mike Oregon is no longer at the Tennessee, and I'm not saying he's not going yeah. to, Mike Oregon is- He'll be there forever. Is my favorite thing about the Tennessee. But I mean, who is going to talk to every small college coach and SID and athletic director, you know, in a hundred mile radius and- you know, pull together what is some pretty essential coverage for not the biggest group of fans, but certainly the, the work that has been done by newspapers kind of driving local content for years. That's kind of that middle area that's going to suffer, I think. High school coverage, there'll always be some sort of high school coverage because people love to read about their kids. 
um, whether it's just the Friday night radio shows. Um, and, and the recruiting piece of it ha- ha- is going is to put a monetary base against some right, of that. Right, right. People are always going to cover University of Tennessee. I think they'll always, to a lesser degree, cover Vanderbilt. What's going to happen to going up to Austin Peay to interview Terry Taylor? You know, what's going to go down to Murfreesboro? Um, that's what I kind of worry is the right word that I think is going to maybe slip through the cracks. And just as an aside, you talking about, I don't know, to me, the tipping point as I look back of daily coverage was I used to enjoy, I used to love going out and get the daily paper every day. I subscribe to the Tennessean. I don't read it a lot, but I subscribe online because I support them. I support local, you know, any media I can. But I remember the last time that I remember being surprised by what was in the paper, 2004, Kevin Stallings interviewed for Ohio State. I remember picking up the paper and whoever it was, maybe Jeff Lockridge, I don't know who the, the beat writer was then, top of the sports, Stallings interviews Ohio State. And like, as a Vanderbilt guy, like, I didn't know that. In 2004, I mean, the internet had been around. That's like the last time, because nowadays you don't, you don't learn anything in a printed yeah. paper. If it was big news, they're tweeting it out the link hours before. So it's, it's been that long ago that I remember being surprised by what something in, in the local paper. So it's just, I mean, like I was kind of surprised. I know we're kind of going all over the place here. I was surprised when Adam Sparks tweeted out a photo the other day from Lexington, Kentucky. It's like, you know, were they going to send someone to cover an 0-5 football team? He was a Texas A&M. So like, what's the, what's the tipping point now? You know, the, the, the Tennessean has gone back and forth on having a dedicated Tennessee writer. Now it just makes more sense as part of the whole network that they can, the USA Today network, they can just use the, the coverage out of Knoxville. But at, at what point are we going to have our low? And I heard Steve Lehman talking about, you know, going on the road. That's great for the commitment that his station gives. But at what point are we gonna, like local media even going to stop traveling to road games? I, I don't know. Well, and it's, it's ironic that you say that because I've talked to Josh Kendall about this, and that's a game, South Carolina at Ole Miss, that maybe he doesn't travel to if Will Muschamp's not on the hot seat. But he made it very clear that this every game could be Will Muschamp's last game, so we need to be at every game. But if it's just year two of a coach that's there, maybe he's not there at that game. It's not just a newspaper problem. That's across the board. So uh, we'll, we shall see. Yeah, it's I mean, it's I mean, that's why you guys talk about this stuff, because it's it's really interesting. And we're all, you know, Steve and I are a little bit older, but we're all all old enough to really see the, the entire transformation of, of the industry. You know, Nashville's gone from a, a, a really solid two paper town where you look forward to both papers every day to a, a good one paper town to right now. It's just, you know, there's just not a lot of that stuff there, there, so to speak, you know, and it's, it's a shame. Mitch, you've seen a lot, you've experienced a lot, and uh, we do appreciate you coming on and talking about it. And obviously, thank you for dealing with me and putting up with me for all those years. So, I was going to say it was a pleasure. It wasn't always a pleasure. <laughs> but I'm proud of you. Look how far you've come. So Good, good to talk to you, Mitch. <laughs> As always, fellas. See ya. Thank you, Mitch. Take care. Special thanks, of course, to Mitch Light for joining us from The Athletic, a life lived in the premium world, Steve, a guy that, you know, he, he doesn't sacrifice anything for his audience, and I've always loved that about him, respected that about him, and probably learned a little bit about that from him as well. Special thanks to Mitch for revealing that um, maybe your best value to the to the Athlon sports family was uh, your ability outside the Athlon sports family. Yeah, there was a couple of moments there where I thought he was going to say something nice about me <laughs> and didn't, <laughs> and I do love him for that. <laughs> No, he, he, he is, uh, in all, in all seriousness, like 
there's very few people that I have looked up to that I view as a mentor and a friend and a colleague and a peer and a boss all at the same time. Uh, Mitch has been probably one of my biggest influences in my entire career. So I, I got to be honest about that. Mitch is, Mitch is a good example too of if your commitment is to, if your commitment's to quality and, and kind of doing things at a really high level, there's always going to be a place for you sort of within the media spectrum. As the media gets smaller and smaller and more fragmented, uh, I, I think Mitch's career is a pretty good testament to the fact that, that there, are, there are ways to do great work in multiple different forums. And, and so many lessons, because again, he's not a business guy. He doesn't get involved too much in all that stuff, but a lot of lessons as to when Athlon should have been investing in digital, uh, how the athletic is investing in some of that, his look at sort of you know where Nashville has come as far as the, the newspaper world there, um, just a lot of interesting insight from, from him. And, and because he's not here to defend himself and he just said some stuff about me, I will say that you know all of his Costco clothing and his visors on the sideline, <laughs> just not my style, you know, but I can't, I can't, you know, I don't think grown men look good in visors. I just don't, unless you're Spurrier. I don't think you can wear a visor. And Does Mitch, Spurrier Mitch, look good in a visor or, or, or are you just used to it? Maybe that's, maybe I'm just used to it, but Mitch would consistently wear the visor on the sideline. And he, I was like, Mitch, you're going to be on the SEC network. Like you're going to be on television wearing that thing. You know that, right? And he's like, yeah, I look good. I'm like, okay, dude. Nah, that's a choice. Yep. It is. That is absolutely a choice. <laughs> uh, I was glad Mitch sort of indulged me here uh, about sort of one of the one of the big pieces in local media is how uh, sort of the the devolution of the newspaper as sort of a, uh, as a driver of storylines within particularly within sports. When you you know they're the, the assignment desk in a market. Yeah, kind of. And broadcast guys absolutely fucking hate that. <laughs> I, I remember I don't mind. I read all your stories and then talk about them. <laughs> I mean, I remember there, there was a few years ago there was a there was a Tennessean editor who said it out loud, I think on Twitter, had said said, you know, we do the stories that, you know, everybody else follows. And she wasn't wrong when she said it. It's indelicate to say it. And you see in markets where you have still strong newspapers or you have had strong newspapers it really does sort of drive the discussion because they're doing the most content they're doing they're putting more bodies against covering sports i mean which is reporting right like who is reporting the news and the newspapers have long been the ones reporting the news which then drives the discussion on sports talk radio or on television and i think now we're living in a world where that reporting has been spread out across mediums i mean to some degree i think that's true i also think that like for instance if you look at radio stations and and you look at how many reporters they actually hire and employ that are there for the radio station and not for somebody else i mean that number in nashville it might be a non-zero number but it's not a a double digit number i i i'm not i'll be honest with you i'm not sure i've worked with one yeah i mean in my career in tw almost 20 years of radio it's bits and pieces of different people's jobs that kind of get put together into into like one sort of thing. Newspapers have been have been the drivers of that for so long. You know, broadcast has broadcast has actual people put against those and, and are in reporting roles, but it's not nearly the numbers that there have been. And so when you see the when you see places like the Tennessean get diminished and, and they're down to I think they're down under ten in the sports department now, that has an effect on the on the overall yeah. amount of coverage within the market. Interesting. A lot of interesting stuff there from Mitch. He's lived a really fascinating life. And I don't know anybody that's more, you know, engrossed and in, in, ingrained in the Nashville media in all different sections. You know, he's done radio, he's done print, he's done his own entrepreneurship. And of course now he's doing premium stuff. And, and uh, for the first time, not, you know, 
not really focused on anything in Nashville for the first time in his career, actually. No, so. I, I don't think it's an accident that if you look at like the beats that that he, you know, the reporters he has, he's he's got some of the premium college football reporters re- reporting to him. Yep, yep. Ohio State and national recruiting guys and Florida, etc. Uh, all right, so let's get to ratings and recs on the show as we do each and every week at the end here. Uh, the ratings are, again, not all that surprising uh, as we look, again, with the NFL being totally dominant. Colts, Titans, the rating, though, back up. I believe it was in the tw- it was 21-ish next last week with the Bears. This was a Thursday night broadcast, but on Fox. Uh, a 25.4 rating, so a really big number. 12.4 rating for Bucks Panthers. 11.9 for Ravens Patriots. A 10.5 for the Bengals Steelers. Bills Cardinals got an 8.8, which is a fascinating football game. Uh, and again, this all courtesy of Mark Binda of News Channel Five. And each rating point that I just mentioned there, of course, as a reminder, about 11,000 TV homes in the Nashville market. So Colts Titans back up again. Huge game. Terrible performance on a Thursday night. Anything? Any commentary about the slot? The how the ratings there jumped from the Bears game I two mean, weeks ago? I mean, a Thursday night primetime game is is going to have more eyeballs. You're you're just you're, it's just going to primetime is always going to have uh, is, is always going to have the biggest audience. No question about it. All right, you want me to go first on recommendation here, or do you want to go first? Because I'm going to blow your mind with synergy. Today. Go go ahead, synergize me. Okay, uh, this is all this is synergy on steroids here. So I, people are obsessed and they lose their minds over jerseys. They they just do. And of course, the NHL just dropped their reverse retro jerseys for every team in the NHL. Of course, the Predators put theirs out. Um, I'm not sure. You know how I think about it. If you'd like to know more about what I think about it, go check out the Gold Standard podcast with myself and Adam Bingen. We spend about twenty minutes talking about the reverse retro jerseys. Real, real quickly, uh, here's what I think about it: uh, go buy the Winter Classic jersey. <laughs> I love, love, love the Winter Classic jersey. There's no question about that. But in the middle of that conversation, if you'll notice throughout the NHL, there is one team that did not feature its logo through any of the promotional materials. Every team was putting out te- teasers on Twitter. Every, you know, every team put out an official photo. And the Blackhawks jersey, if you notice, they do not post their logo anywhere on social media. And even in the official fo- photography release, everyone is front-facing the camera, except for one team where the Chicago Blackhawks guy is turned sideways to show the jersey. I don't think that's an accident. It is not an accident. But it allowed us to have a really interesting conversation about the Blackhawks logo and where it came from and i recommend here's my recommendation long story to get to the recommendation here scott powers and this is the synergy we had this conversation on on the gold standard podcast so go listen to our talk about the blackhawks logo if you care but also with the athletic i think the definitive story on logos and offensive logos and names and and is should we or should we not that kind of debate one of the most well-researched well-documented and thorough pieces of reporting I've ever read on this particular topic which is a very sensitive topic to a lot of people Scott Powers wrote an article for The Athletic it's very long uh, extremely well done about is it time for the Chicago Blackhawks to drop their Native American logo and he interviewed a Native American who loves the logo he interviewed a Native American who hates the logo he talked to a lot of different organizations Native American organizations in the Chicago area about what they think, the relationships, studied the history of the name of the team. goes back to a, a military vet, vet's you know, platoon unit in World War I. So it's, it's a fascinating piece of reporting if you care about that kind of stuff. Very enlightening, very good. It's a perfect example of what Mitch has been talking about. Really in-depth, thoughtful, you know, you know, thought-provoking content from The Athletic also ties into jerseys that are, you know, Things that people get worked up about. I mean, this is 
this fan base is tied to has been tied to this logo for for so long. It was even sort of kind of re-upped during the Blackhawks renaissance here 15 years ago. Dennis Savard famously said in a, in a press conference, he was, was blasting his players. He was the coach of the Blackhawks at the time. His phrase was, who's going to commit to the Indian? Who is going to, who is going to you know, be a Blackhawk? Who is going to kind of give everything for, for the team? And that phrase, commit to the Indian, was, was bandied about within the Blackhawks uh, fan base for a long time. And it's just sort of fascinating to sort of see how this is the, – the Overton window has shifted on the usage of Native American uh, iconography and, you know, delving into whether or not it's appropriate. They, they have an extremely complex, sometimes very positive, sometimes negative relationship that the Chicago Blackhawks do with Native American organizations in the area. So it's very interesting. It's far more 50-50 than I think, you know – the Washington Football Club name, which is literally a, like a slur in the dictionary. Yeah, this this is there's far more like both sides of ism here. That's fair on this, and so I think it's a great piece of reporting. Learn your history, study it, and then come up with your own opinion after that. So that's my recommendation, Scott Powers. Is it time for the Chicago Blackhawks to drop their Native American logo on the athletic? Go get it. It's awesome. My recommendation is I want to send you to the good boys at Awful Announcing this week. So Awful Announcing puts out this uh, survey. Uh, and it's a fan survey, but it's also they've also done this n- a number of years. They put up all the raw vote totals, so you can see it's it's a fairly large sample of people that are, that are kind of obsessed with NFL announcers. And so they put out their 2020 NFL announcer ratings this year. Who do you think is of of 15 broadcast teams appear on Fox, ESPN, CBS, and NBC? Who do you think is number one? I am assuming the guy who makes $400 million a year to call games, Tony Romo. And the guy who apparently wants $400 million beside him, Jim Nance. I, Jim Nance should pay us to go from the Final Four to the Masters to the NFL. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, Jerk. <laughs> so It's a very good broadcast team. And they'll be on the Ravens-Titans call on Sunday. Yeah. Nance and, Nance and Romo are number one. That's actually not that surprising. Michaels and Collinsworth are number two. That w- that would be my number one. Number three, number three on the list. Kind of a surprise. Kevin Harlan and Trent Green. Not surprised that Kevin Harlan is viewed that that highly. No, he, Harlan's a great he's ex- broadcaster. He's exceptional. Yeah, and, and I think I think Green is a great example of someone who uh, someone who calls a game. Who, Green is not Romo uh, in the. And that he probably doesn't have predictive powers that <laughs> that Romo apparently does, but I mean Green is Green is very knowledgeable and yeah. and, and is and is very comfortable on air and and is is probably one of the least showy commentators that's out there and I think I think that kind of gets reflected in there. Number four is Ian Eagle and Charles Davis. Charles Davis, who had a terrible game calling the calling the Titans here a few weeks ago. What did you What did you call Charles Davis? A bad a, caption a, service. A bad caption service. I, 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 I thought he's he such t- a nice fellow, though. I mean, he may, he might be better than, and I'm giving him credit for. But he, he has a very smooth delivery, very solid broadcaster, very positive guy, and a very nice guy. So I think he gets a pass on the quality of his content sometimes. So, so as let, a listener, so let's cut to the bottom. Who's the worst? Who, who? By the way, you have not mentioned Joe Buck and Troy Aikman yet. Joe Buck, who and are the number one broadcast team for Fox, they finished sixth. That's I don't 
personally love that broadcast team, but I have to recognize their talent. I mean, I think Aikman is I think Aikman is really talented. Uh, I don't have the Buck hatred that that some people do, but Buck engenders such hatred among I know, like I know. a certain like a He's certain like the Jim Harbaugh of, of broadcasting. Yeah. And and I don't, like it doesn't matter how good he is, people are going to hate him sometimes. Yeah, 3 or 0 and 4. No, I, yeah, he's Harbaugh's bad now, but like again, I I would I don't know how Joe Buck and Joe Troigman aren't top two or three on that list honestly I, I think it's really interesting the espn guys the it's a booth that i actually kind of like which is steve levy brian really Gre- brian greasy and, and lewis riddick um, it feels like a placeholder to me so they're i think they're eighth but because tessitore and that crew w- and booger mcfarlane were so reviled last year like it's so strange to me I, I i could listen to tests a thousand times over over steve levy oh my god no uh, really uh, see levy I, I cannot i don't uh, steve levy's like it feels like he's too loose like he's too relaxed and too did just you like listen to tessator last year tessator i'm like, a college football guy i love tests i love tests tessator was like actively trying to create nicknames on air no, that's, the that's whole true. showtime mahomes bullshit that, that he was <laughs> that, that he was trying You're to very, create out of out of patrick mahomes very was, passionate I, I just it was just terrible i'm not suggesting that he should be on the nfl or that Booger Witten in all the different variations was successful. I'm not suggesting that. I all these guys are great. I think I could. I really like Lewis Riddick. I could listen to him. Greasy, okay. Levy, okay. I don't. I. I it feels like a a B team placeholder for whatever they've got planned next year. Is what it feels like. See, I. I have. I have very. Uh, I have very strong feelings about Steve Levy. I like Levy okay. a lot. Levy. Levy was one of the best hockey announcers that ESPN had. Um, the, Which is what he should be doing now. Well, I mean, they don't have. The, <laughs> I agree with you. They don't have the contract. That's what he does great. But but like the the ESPN uh, NHL guys were. I think Levy was the number two team, and I think Gary Thorne was the number one team. ESPN oh, I had love Gary Thorne. Uh, ESPN had great hockey yeah. announcers, and we're getting off to the side here. But but I like Levy a lot, and, and I, I think I, that, I don't like him on the Monday Night broadcast. That, that booth that booth is immeasurably better than it was last I, year. I love his sort of like lighthearted charm and and delivery. On, on highlights and on hockey. I, I don't think it fits the gravity of Monday Night Football to me. That's fair. But that's just me. Again, we all have, again, broadcaster teams are a lot like jerseys. They incite tons of extremely powerful emotions and largely mean absolutely nothing. Because, I mean, honestly, like, if a pile of human excrement broadcasted the Super Bowl, you are still watching it. So broadcast teams do not turn people off of games. Like you watch no matter what. Same thing with jerseys. Like you will watch your favorite team whether they are dressed, you know, in crap or or a jersey that you love. It's just not those things don't have any impact. And if really, Ky- but but they incite incredible emotion. And if Kyler Murray throws an off balance fifty yard pass to DeAndre Hopkins to end the game, it's not going to matter who the who who the broadcast right. announcers. Are. Y- well, so who are the bottom five? I don't I don't I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so 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 we'll go so here's the bottom five number 11 adam amin adam amin i i really like adam amin i i, I do too and mark schlereth man i see like so much twitter traffic about he's pretty sticky yeah, yeah i see uh, i see so much twitter traffic about people hating schlereth this yeah. year number 12 andrew catalano and james lofton here's all you need to know i don't have an opinion on them because i don't remember listening to the game yeah so that's uh, probably all you need to know. Uh, Thirteen we rarely get uh, because he's usually on West Coast stuff. Is uh, Chris Myers with Brock Heward and Greg Jennings? Something about Chris Myers' voice, and I've watched a lot of NASCAR over the years. <laughs> something about Chris Myers' voice bothers me. I don't understand why. It's not fair because he can't change it. I'm sure my voice bothers a million people, <laughs> but, but like you know what I'm saying. Like I just can't. 
I just don't like his voice. <laughs> That's <laughs> absolutely great. fair. Number 14 will be very familiar to Titans fans because we've had him a lot. Uh, Spiro Didis Ugh, brutal. Uh, and Adam Marchaletta. And then brutal. number 15, maybe uh, they're ranked the worst and Titans fans will kind of, kind of agree because mm-hmm. we had him here two weeks ago. Dick Stockton and Brady Quinn. Now they had Greg Jennings with him on right. the Titans game a couple of weeks Quinn, ago. Quinn's his usual partner. They, they've they've moved. They've shuffled some people around because I think and and that's true of like the bottom part of yeah. lineups. They they try people out. Like a a keep to leave was on what was the third person on a broadcast. Was it any good? Why? What the hell is somebody paying a keep to leave to do? A keep to leave. All that money's going right back to the NFL <laughs> for fines. <laughs> he was he was actually I, I didn't hate him. Okay. Uh, right. uh, others had strong opinions. Dick Dick Stockton doesn't bother me because he's like an old cozy sweater from my childhood. Like I just remember listening to a lot of Dick Stockton, so he doesn't bother me. It's not great. But if you I, I didn't think Greg Jennings was terrible, but I didn't think he was good either. If so. you put on a thirty year old sweater though, I mean it's That's gonna true. have holes in it. That's a good point. I, I think he called and the Titans the Texans, you know, three or four times. Ooh, and yeah, it was not great. So anyway, it's a lot of fun. Uh they awful announcing breaks down all of the the highs and the lows of each of the uh, teams and, and, and kind of why people have voted for them. So check it out. It's uh, on awfulannouncing.com. There you have it. Ratings and recs for the week. Also, special thanks, of course, to Mitch Light. Life in the premium world of media. His perspectives. Uh, always love uh, hanging out with him. You can follow him on Twitter, of course, at Mitch Light. You can follow me, at Braden Gall. Follow me, at Scavendish. There you have it. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Share the show. Tell everybody about it. We do appreciate it. Have a great weekend, everybody. Have a cocktail as well. Thank you for listening to Lamestream Sports on the 440 Sports Network. Thanks, folks.